Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome to Administrative Static. This is John Vecchione, uh, to be joined by Mark Chenoweth. And uh, I want to first apologize for last week's radio show that we seem to have a technical glitch. Uh, Perhaps the the Western UFOs uh, knocked out our our taping, but we had uh, taped a show and three segments did not get picked up on the tape for some reason. So I apologize to anyone who was listening and wondered what happened. Anyway. Um, I am going to start off uh, today's uh, broadcast with a um, disturbing case out of the Ninth Circuit. And this case is Verdun v. the City of San Diego, October 26, 2022. And it's an opinion by Judge Bress, and it has a dissent by Judge Bumatai. And um, this case is about chalking your tires. And whether or not that's Fourth Amendment search and whether if it is a a search under the Fourth Amendment to the United States Constitution, whether or not it requires a warrant. So the the court of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and that's important, we'll come back to that, uh, has found that the practice of law enforcement of going around and putting chalk marks on your tires when you park somewhere so that they can tell where you've been there more than two hours or whatever the, whatever the time limit is on the publicly owned uh, parking spaces, um, that they can then tell. And uh, under and, and the Sixth Circuit has an opinion already that says, no, that's a search. They, they search your, uh, they search and they require a warrant. They, and it's, and it's a, a trespassory search. They're, they're actually invading your property. They're putting chalk on your car. Um, so uh, what, what has gone on here is that the Sixth Circuit found very clearly that this was a search and that it was warrantless and that you needed a warrant because you can't just go around assuming people have been breaking the law. And um, so uh, what happened here? Well, the Ninth Circuit came out the other way, two to one. They say, and uh, here's their story. Their story is is that this type of search of parking spaces started sometime in the 1930s. And they cite a bunch of cases from all over the country where people used to chalk uh, the uh, tires of cars, even, even in the early days of the automobile for this very purpose. But nobody that the Ninth Circuit says thought that this was any kind of Fourth Amendment violation until the Jones case, where the Supreme Court noted that there's two types of, of analysis they'll do in searches. One is the trespassory, one is the uh, invasion of privacy. It's whether you have a privacy interest. And that is cases like cats where they tape your phone calls and things of that nature. But the Supreme Court revived the trespassory nature of a search, meaning 
you know, like when the British officials would come into your house and, and toss the place uh, or when the police do that in the old uh, procedurals. So that is a trespassory uh, search because they come on your property. So here, uh, the, the trespass is putting chalk on your car. Now, what does the Ninth Circuit say about that? Well, they say, yeah, we assume it's a search, but we're going to go through and say it's an administrative search. Now, this doctrine is not one I'm too thrilled with, um, I, I, but what it means is, is that there are certain types of searches for administrative purposes that are not for law enforcement purposes that are allowed as long as they're reasonable and not too invasive and, and you know, it doesn't really cause a problem. And that was usually under the expectation of privacy prong of the search uh, requirements. But they have now, the Ninth Circuit has now moved this to Jones uh, type searches, which are trespassory. Um, and I think that's going to be a problem for them. So what else do they say? Well, they say, ah, it's de minimis, a little chalk on your tire. That doesn't, that's, that's not causing you a lot of problems. Although, um, I don't know if any of you folks out there have ever met some of these car fanatics. If you put chalk on any part of their vehicle, they go, would go ballistic. But, um, but apparently they, the uh, Ninth Circuit says, well, first of all, is this important? And, and they go on to, uh, in, in rapturous, in rapturous uh, uh, praise of everything that car chalking can do. Um, why do we need these parking spaces? Well, if we don't have these parking spaces, uh, you, you, people will have to cruise. They call it cruise around, and then and sometimes maybe they'll park in the handicapped spots. And and so this chalking it helps commerce, it helps traffic flow. It's it's a wondrous uh, device. Uh, and, and really, they go on for pages with how, how important this all is. And then they go on for pages on how hard the other methods of finding out if you've been there too long are. And they say, well, you know, there's all these police requirements and all this sort of thing. So um, I, I, I was a little bit amused at, at how it looked. But in any event, so the, so the first thing is the parking spaces uh, are too hard to monitor in any other way, according to them. And, and then also, um, it's, it's so de minimis. They're just putting chalk on your car. Uh, they're just putting it on your tire. Well, uh, the Fifth Circuit has ruled that, that a, a trespassory search is just pressing your finger into a tire to see whether or not there's, um, you know, contraband stored in the tire. So I, I think that what the Ninth Circuit has done here, so they go through the analysis. They say, oh, look, this is, the, you know, and they cite, they cite this case Patel. And in Patel, there was a hotel that was being, that was being searched. I'll, I'll just put it that way. Um, I won't go into the full facts of it, but the key thing is it was out of the Ninth Circuit. And the Ninth Circuit found that these type of uh, uh, searches, searches of hotels were okay because they're, they're um, you know, a highly regulated industry, the hotel industry. And the Supreme Court took the case and reversed them so fast your head had spin. And they said, no, this is not heavily reg regulated industry. That exception is very narrow because what the Supreme Court has said is if, you, if it's the sort of industry, and they've only had three, like one of them is, is making explosives, right? Um, I, I assume I always use the, the example of nuclear power uh, because from the minute it started, the, the U.S. government invented it. So you 
you got to assume it's highly regulated. Um, and, and it can obviously, a leak would be uh, a big problem. So, so it's dangerous. It's both heavily regulated and dangerous. And we, I think that's the test now under Patel. So the Ninth Circuit keeps citing Patel, not taking any notice that, that Patel, it was only there because the Ninth Circuit got struck down and, and reversed. So this case goes on, and not only do they have pans of, of rapture over, uh, over how, how getting everyone out of the parking spaces quickly uh, improves the lives of uh, everyone in the Ninth Circuit, but um, they also say that this is very de minimis, and it doesn't really cause any uh, problem. And then they, take a, then they take a shot at the dissent, which is Judge Bumatai. And he he says, wait a minute, this is just like what the British were doing. And so um, and so here's what the uh, the majority says about that. I kind of liked it. This is this uh, nor can tire trucking be made to violate the Constitution through hyperbole. The dissent offers no support for its grandiose suggestion that the benign practice of lightly dusting chalk on the tire of a car parked in a city space is comparable to the crown officials' abuse of investigative tools that helped spark the American Revolution. And the dissent's apparent contention that tire chalking, quote, exhibits the same characteristics as general warrants and writs is obviously inaccurate. The general warrants of the colonial era Era allowed royal officials to seize, search and seize whatever and whomever they pleased while investigating crimes or affronts to the crown. With officers, quote, rummaging through homes in unrestrained search for evidence of criminal activity. Tire chalking is, of course, not that. So, um, and, and uh, this is the part I really like because I think this may be true and I don't think it helps them. Much of the dissenting opinion appears grounded in the belief that the entire administrative search doctrine is an affront to the original meaning of the Fourth Amendment and should therefore be extremely limited in its application. <laughs> and yes, yes. <laughs> Mark has joined us. Yes, yes, that's exactly right. I think they've got the, I think they've, they've got it. By Georgia, they've got it. Uh, so um, so I, you can almost see the light bulb going off. Yeah. <laughs> You say, then they say the Supreme Court has never said this. And they say the dissent's high-level historical overview certainly does not prove it either. And so um, – and, and the same can be said of the dissent's repeated reliance on a dissenting opinion from Justice O'Connor in Veronia, which of course is not the law, which I will add is not the law yet because now what has happened? So I, I'll, I'll just talk about um, – can, uh, can I say one thing yeah. about that, John? Yeah, yeah. Which is – so where does the majority draw the line? Essentially, what they're saying is, ah, if it's not too bad, it doesn't violate. But the dissent draws a clear line there. If there's a physical trespass, that is a search. That's very easy for judges to administrate. It doesn't matter whether the physical trespass is an inch or a mile. It's a line that you can draw and you can police. And what happened here also is they kind of dissed the Jones opinion that found the physical trespass. The very first thing is, ah, no one ever thought of this before Jones. And we're, we, and, and they do, this is a point which I can see being made, which is that this thing has happened since time immemorial, this chalking business. And so they say that just because Jones came along, we're very reluctant to overturn it. That's a reasonable thing that it's gone on for 75 years. But if the Supreme Court tells you that a physical invasion of any kind is a Jones search, then you have to take that seriously. And they just brush it off. And then they sort of brush off Patel where they got where they got reversed. Like so and, much chalk. Right. And these are these uh, and it's not like a liberal conservative. There's Trump appointees on either side of this. I mean, but, it's, not, but it's not just the physical trespass. I mean, that's definitely a, a line right. you can police. But it's also the fact that 
there's completely innocent conduct here. Correct. And if you allow searches of completely innocent conduct, then where do you draw the line? Can you search? Uh, we have the case against the IRS for Mr. Harper. Can you search his his records for uh, you know whether or not you got he's it? He's violated whether or not he's paid his taxes when there's no evidence that he hasn't. You're absolutely right. So Judge Bumatai, I didn't get a chance to go through his dissent, but it was blistering, as you can tell from what the majority said about it. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Administrative Static. I wanted to share with you an amicus brief that uh, the New Civil Liberties Alliance filed this week in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit. Uh, This is in the case of Greenberg v. Lahaki. And John, we're in the, the, this case is up from the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. Uh, And we're in the somewhat unusual position in this case of supporting someone who won below. Uh, so that's that's nice to see. Occasionally we have the opportunity uh, uh, to do that. Uh, but uh, uh, the Third Circuit has been known to to overturn uh, cases uh, from below before. So we're not out of the woods yet. Well, what this case uh, involves is a rule, and it's Rule 8.4G, that the Pennsylvania uh, Bar has uh, tried to uh, to pass and, and foment on uh, lawyers who are licensed uh, in Pennsylvania. And the problem with what they're doing, and I, I know we've talked about this before in the Connecticut context, John, because we have this case called Sarami v. Bowler, where NCLA is, uh, we're actually the, the lawyers suing and, over that. And, that and, one. and the, the uh, cer- certain pressure groups are trying to get this 8.4G in every state. I think we'll see Correct. it everywhere unless we do something. Yeah. So if you're listening and you're not in Pennsylvania or Connecticut, you are not out of the woods. This is uh, this is a uh, this is a, an orchestrated campaign uh, to get this rule passed in many many jurisdictions across the country. So uh, let, let let us tell you about it and be on the alert for it in Colorado or wherever you are, uh, and because uh, uh, it may be coming your way next. But the the problem with uh, Rule eight point four G is that it tries to regulate attorney speech, not just attorney speech in the courtroom or in briefs, but even attorney speech in conversations with clients, attorney speech in the uh, in uh, uh, bar association meetings, in CLEs, uh, just anywhere where a lawyer is acting in their professional capacity, essentially, this rule purports uh, to cover them. And uh, it's almost as though the Pennsylvania Bar Association doesn't know about the First Amendment. It's, uh, it's a little it's a little shocking. Uh, but um, uh, the the problem with the rule is that it is both uh, it's a viewpoint based kind of uh, discrimination, uh, meaning that it applies if you are uh, uh, if you are engaged in speech that's denigrating to about eleven different uh, categories of people. But it doesn't apply if you're saying things praiseworthy uh, toward those groups of people. That is textbook viewpoint discrimination, uh, which the First Amendment forbids. It's also content discriminatory, which the First Amendment forbids, because as I say, it applies to these uh, 11 
uh, different uh, uh, categories of conduct and, or not, excuse me, not conduct, speech, not conduct. Uh, the, so what the, uh, what the rule says is uh, that you, you, essentially you can't say things that are denigrating to folks based on their race, sex, these are the 11 speech topics, race, sex, gender identity or expression, religion, national origin, ethnicity, disability, age, sexual orientation, marital status, and socioeconomic status. So those are the 11 uh, forbidden categories. Uh, it's almost as though they uh, went back to the 1980s and took all the punchlines of all the jokes from the 1980s and, and said, okay, those are all off. Those are all off the table. Even George Carlin only had seven words you couldn't say on the radio. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> They've dumped it to 11 categories of, of harassing or, uh, or discriminatory uh, speech. And so this, uh, uh, under Rule 8.4G, this kind of speech would be considered uh, misconduct and it would subject you to discipline from the bar. And presumably it could cause your license to be suspended or revoked if you engaged in speech that was uh, sufficiently uh, uh, problematic from the bar association's uh, point of view. Well, uh, we have jumped into this uh, case to say uh, a couple of things. First of all, we have uh, tried to buttress Mr. Greenberg's uh, standing in the case. The the uh, the other side here has attacked uh, has attacked his standing and suggests that there's no real chance that uh, that he is uh, you know, going to be subjected to any discipline under this rule. And so uh, the the, def- the defendant appellant here is Jeremy Lahaki in his official capacity as the board chair of the disciplinary board of the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania. The plaintiff appellee is Zachary Greenberg. And as I say, the case is in the U.S. Court of Appeals. For the Third Circuit, it's case number 22-1733, if you're interested uh, in, in looking it up. And uh, our colleague, Rich Samp, uh, is the author of the amicus brief uh, for, uh, for NCLA. So props to, to Rich for uh, his usual sterling job uh, on this uh, amicus brief. But uh, let me jump back into what I was saying about standing, which is uh, they're trying to suggest that simply because they don't think that the kinds of things that he has said would subject him to discipline, that he doesn't have a standing to object to uh, the rule. Uh, but standing is a little bit broader in the First Amendment context than it is in, in other contexts for a couple of different reasons. First of all, uh, there's this concern about chilling speech. And so the, the courts have, have tended to recognize that it's not just the fact that, that you would be penalized, it's the fact that you might have a have a uh, an actual and well-founded fear that you could be the target of an enforcement action and that that actual and well-founded fear is sufficient to create standing because an actual and well-founded fear is sufficient uh, to chill your speech. So what Mr. Greenberg talks about is the fact that he has given CLE presentations before where people have come up to him after his CLE presentation and have said that they were offended by what he said. Well, if if this new rule were in place and someone were offended by what he said and, and what he said was uh, along these, these lines, then uh, presumably that person could file a bar complaint and he might face, uh, you know, discipline. And Mark, I don't know that 30 years ago we would have flagged this so quickly, 
But what has happened with Judge – what has happened in the law schools and who's coming out of law schools and what they say is offensive or or somehow discriminatory has so so um, metastasized that who can tell? Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. And, and uh, one of the examples that Rich gives in here is one you're very familiar with, John, which is what happened to Professor Ilya Shapiro right. uh, at Georgetown where he – uh, you know, he had a, a, an unfortunate tweet that wasn't worded very well, but where he was essentially objecting to uh, President Biden's uh, the fact that he was only considering African-American uh, female candidates for a vacancy on the on the Supreme Court. Uh, and uh, I, I think that it's fair to say that what he said would have come within the confines of Rule 8.4 G if he was subject to that. And, uh, and, and Rich's point here is that uh, he, he analogized it. Well, he, he talks about what happened to Professor Shapiro in, in the amicus brief and, and suggests that uh, it would be inappropriate to discipline a lawyer for engaging in this, in this kind of speech or chilling this, uh, this kind of speech the way that Georgetown Law School decided uh, to chill this, uh, this kind of speech. It's just not uh, where we need to be going. We need to, to be having uh, the ability to, uh, I mean, the law is all about finding the truth based on the clash of views and you need to preserve that clash of, of views, even speech that's offensive, and you need to correct that offensive speech with more and better speech, not with uh, censorship or with prohibiting or punishing the speech that you find uh, offensive. Uh, so as I say, there's a, a relaxed uh, injury, in fact, a standard for asserting free speech claims. Mr. Greenberg has adequately demonstrated his actual and well-founded fear based on his, his CLE conduct, uh, CLE uh, presentations in the past. And then the last thing uh, on this is that uh, the evidentiary burden to establish injury fact, in fact, is uh, particularly relaxed with respect to the overbreadth claim uh, in this in this case. Under the overbreadth doctrine of the First Amendment, uh, someone is able to uh, facially challenge uh, a rule uh, that is overly broad, even if, so even if there are elements of the rule that or ways in which the rule could be uh, constitutionally, uh, maybe that's not the best way to say that, even though there are applications of the rule that, that might not run afoul of the First Amendment, that doesn't save the rule. If the rule is, is overbroad, uh, then the fact that, that you would be subject to the rule allows you to object to the overbreadth of the rule, even though uh, you aren't currently being subjected uh, to uh, one of those overbroad uh, uh, enforcement applications. And that doctrine has been in place uh, for a long time. And I, I think that that combination of factors assures that that uh, Mr. Greenberg's standing is solid here and it won't be kicked out uh, on that basis uh, by the by the Third Circuit. The other thing that we point out, uh, John, in, or that Rich points out in this amicus brief for NCLA, uh, is that Rule 8.4G is really invalid in all of its applications. And the reason that it's invalid in all of its applications is because it's a viewpoint-based speech restriction. And that's it's just a, a really black-letter constitutional law that viewpoint-based speech restrictions uh, are invalid. And we walked through uh, the, you know, what, the, what that viewpoint basis is. Essentially, you can't say denigrating things. You can say, say positive things. And the other thing that, that Rich points out uh, uh, in, this, uh, in this brief is uh, you know, something that happened to uh, to one of our uh, clients uh, in uh, in Connecticut, where um, uh, you know he was essentially involved in a uh, uh, 
in a uh, heated conversation at a bar-related uh, event, and um, the conversation was the, the the client is a is a white male attorney. The heated conversation was with uh, an African American uh, woman, and uh, she was speaking in favor of of racial justice measures in the wake of of George Floyd's uh, murder. And uh, the the other attorney responded by calling her a uh, quote unquote race pandering nitwit who was quote unquote suffering from black entitlement and that uh, attorney testified in Connecticut that the other attorneys in support of rule 8.4G up there, uh, that the other attorney's speech constituted improper racial discrimination and that this conduct should never be uh, okay. And this, this testimony demonstrates the sort of speech that sponsors of rule 8.4G are targeting for sanction. And we wanted to bring that to the attention uh, of the third circuit as well. So we'll keep an eye on this. We'll let you know what the third circuit decides to do. Hopefully the first amendment will still be safe in, uh, in Pennsylvania uh, and safe uh, for lawyers there. Stay tuned for more right after this.